Good morning. I think uh, we could do with a bit of extra light up here. Actually, it's a bit, bit dark. Um, blinds being closed, so I'm just going to put this here so I can see a bit easier. And uh, switch it on. Oh, <laughs> would you believe it? What's wrong with this lamp? Now, if you know, the kids were in, then we'd have a bit of fun, but you might think I'm patronising you if I ask you that. So I'm going to plug it in, and, uh, and we'll see how we go. Oh, there we go. That's better, isn't it? Now, I'm sure you've never done this, but um, I have known people, you know, maybe me sometimes, occasionally try and you know, turn on some electrical appliance and be frustrated because it's not working. Uh, why is it not doing it? Why is it not doing what it should? And then you kind of go and look, and it's not even plugged in. Uh, or not switched on to the mains at the wall. In fact, I've got a kind of recollection. It happened here quite recently, either in the office or one of the groups, but I can't remember who it was, which is probably just as well. Um, but we need, to, we need to make the connection, doesn't it? The lamp does not work if it's not connected into the mains electricity and receiving that kind of flow of the, the life of the electricity into it. And uh, in this sense, uh, we're going to see this morning, there's, uh, there's no such thing um, as a cordless Christian. In this sense, I mean, obviously, yeah, you've got torches and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't really work very well. But there's no such thing as a cordless Christian. It's a Christian who's not plugged in to the life and the flow of life that comes from Jesus. In this morning's passage, Jesus teaches his disciples this using a similar picture, a similar picture language, a picture of a vine. I guess he might have used this amazing lamp illustration, but people wouldn't have understood him so well uh, if he talked about needing to be plugged into the mains electricity. Uh, So let's get started into the passage. It's chapter 15 of John's Gospel, and it's on page 1083 in the Blue Church Bibles. Uh, John's Gospel, chapter 15, and I'm going to read from verse 1. So this is Jesus speaking. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit Unless you remain in me, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me, And my words remain in you. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Uh, Well, if uh, if you're feeling a bit sharp this morning, uh, you might have picked up that Jesus is saying something here about remaining in him and bearing fruit. He repeats those words, remain and uh, fruit, Uh, enough times that we pick up on their importance. But we'll get a a clearer understanding of what Jesus is teaching here if we think about the background, the context into what he's teaching, to where he's teaching. Uh, And this is background knowledge that would have been immediately obvious to Jesus' followers and to John's readers. 
It's entirely possible that that Jesus and his disciples by this point in the evening are are walking through the old city of Jerusalem uh, as uh, as they're kind of uh, heading out there. Maybe uh, as Jesus begins this section of teaching, perhaps they observe depictions of vines maybe on the temple. Uh, Or maybe they're walking past a a vine, uh, a real one, growing. But there's a background that goes deeper than their surroundings as Jesus taught them. The image of a vine was a significant image used in the Old Testament part of the Bible. And there the vine represented Israel, the covenant people of God. And if you read through the references to Israel, the old covenant people of God as the vine, you will notice that those references depict Israel as a fruitless vine, or at least as a vine that bears bad fruit. A vine which is subject to judgment. For example, Psalm 80 speaks of this vine being cut down burned with fire and perishing at the rebuke of God. Isaiah chapter 5 contains this jamming, damning charge. Not jamming, sorry, it's an unfortunate mistake. Um, jam, vine, anyway. Um, contains this damning charge that the vines in this vineyard yielded only bad fruit. In Jeremiah chapter 2, the Lord says of his people Israel, I had planted you like a choice vine of sound and reliable stock. How then? Did you turn against me into a corrupt wild vine? There are hints of future hope, though. Uh, Like that in Isaiah chapter 27, uh, verses 2 and 6. And Isaiah 27 holds out this hope for the future. In that day, Isaiah writes, in that day, sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. In days to come, Jacob will take root. Israel will bud and blossom and fill all the world with fruit. And now with that background, Jesus says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. It would have been clear to his disciples and to the early readers of John's gospel that Jesus was claiming to replace God's covenant people, Israel. He's the fulfillment of what they pointed towards. From now on, the people of God are located in him. God's covenant people shall no longer be named as those who are in Israel, but those who are in Christ. Like earlier in John chapter 2, where Jesus claims to be the true temple, the true place where sinful humanity can meet with holy God and he dwell among them. Jesus is now that place. Or in John chapter 6, where he claims to be the true bread from heaven, fulfilling that picture of the manna which God provided for his people in the wilderness. They needed that bread to live. Jesus provides that life. We ultimately need him if we're to live. And there's kind of other fulfillments throughout John's gospel. And here, Jesus is the true vine. The covenant people of God are those who are incorporated into him. Unlike Israel, though, Jesus is a fruitful vine. He's an increasingly fruitful vine. This vine is tended by none other than his father, the farmer or gardener, who tends to the vine to make it increasingly fruitful. And we get to be in this vine, part of this vine. If we're followers of Jesus, we're the branches. And one thing is abundantly clear from Jesus' teaching here. We must remain in him. We must abide in him, as some of the other translations put it. We must so live in connection and union with Jesus that we receive our life from him and be fruitful. Like this lamp must remain, must abide in the mains electricity. We must remain in Jesus 
be in union with him if we're to receive our life and be fruitful. Remain in me, Jesus says, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I wonder how we're doing at cultivating that kind of union with Jesus individually as a church. Where are we? Maybe as we hear these words of Jesus this morning, perhaps we're struck by that challenge to, have I neglected this? What am I doing to cultivate that that union with Jesus, to be abiding in him, to be remaining in him, to be connected to him, receiving the life from him? If I were to kind of be able to step out of my life and and look, look on it from a distance, would it look like I was connected to Jesus? Would it look like I was in union with him? Or would I kind of give more the appearance of being apart from him? And notice here the kind of contrast between Jesus and the old vine. The old vine had rotten fruit. But in Jesus, in the true vine... There's no place for that fruit. The Father is not going to allow Jesus to become a corrupt vine. Will he do that? Will he allow that? Or will he remove the non-fruit-bearing branches? But now, now we've established that, we might be asking the question by now, what is the fruit? What is the fruit? Well, before we answer that, actually as part of answering that, let's read on from verse 9 where Jesus continues this section of teaching, and I think explain what he means, explains what he means by using this fine picture. Uh, so if you've shut your Bibles, please open them again, uh, page 1083, and we're going to read on in John chapter 15, looking at verses 9 to 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command love each other. I don't know about you, but reading verses like that, I was kind of blown away with uh, this sense of of cascading love and, and how high it is, but also the challenge of it. As the Father has loved me, as the Father has eternally loved the Son, so have I loved you. We'll think about that in a moment. But then it kind of goes on. The the son loves us, or loves his disciples, 
as the Father has loved him. It's, in, it's in, almost incredible. But then he goes on to say, love each other as I have loved you. We'll think about that in a moment as well. Before we kind of get to that, I just want to linger on this astonishing phrase that Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, uh, just uh, recently I was talking to someone whose experience of their earthly father was not what it should be. In fact, they said that they grew up feeling a complete absence of fatherly love, which, of course, was deeply painful for them. And if you've had similar experience, maybe you find it hard to, to view the idea of a father's love without caution. But God the Father is a good father. He's complete in his goodness. There's no neglect in his fatherhood. He's perfect in his love. And he can and will more than make up for any absence of love from an earthly father. He fathers perfectly. He loves perfectly, fully, completely, acceptingly. And we saw last week, just a a few verses earlier, Jesus made it clear that it is both he and his father who love us. In John chapter 14, verse 21, he says, Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. And later this same evening, Jesus will pray in a prayer to his father that you This is chapter 17. You have loved them even as you have loved me. It's this kind of sinking in. Let Let it sink in on you. That as the Father has loved the Son, so the Son loves us. And as the Father loves the Son, so the Father loves us. Jesus makes it clear in that prayer in chapter 17 that the them is all those who will believe in him. This includes us now in Portsmouth 2,000 years or so later. He makes that explicitly clear. He prays that this will be known in the world that the Father loves us as he loves the Son. This love is complete. The tense of the Greek word that's used signals completion. It's a complete love. It's, it's perfect. It's done. It's, I have loved you. It includes his love from before time began. It includes his love for eternity. And then the same tense is used when Jesus talks about how he has loved. It's a completed thing. And within hours, he'll be on the cross at the height, showing the kind of height of that love. The same tense is used of of this perfect, completed love in chapter 17, uh, where Jesus talks about the Father having loved him from before the creation of the world. And he's going on to say that's the love, that complete love that we are loved with. Jesus the Son shows himself to us, and he shows the Father to us. But as well as showing the Father to us, the Son shows the Father's love to us. As well as showing the Father to us and showing the Father's love to us, he shares the Father's love with us. Do you see the difference? He's not just saying, look at this amazing love. 
but he's sharing it with us. He's bringing it to us and inviting us in to share in it, to receive it, to be sons and daughters with him. He invites us into it. He beckons us in to be loved, as loved as he himself is loved. Although that idea of beckoning in is, is kind of inadequate because it's not like he just remains in some room somewhere and calls out and says, come in and, and be loved. He goes out to us. He brings that love to us, comes out to us, reaches out to us, brings his love and his father's love out to us. This is like trying to describe some stunningly breathtaking scenery. It's, it's hard to find adequate words to describe this view. But John, goes, uh, John gives us another helpful insight in his introduction to his gospel. Back in chapter 1, verse 18, he writes, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. The Son refers to Jesus. The Son here is described as being in the closest relationship with the Father. A literal translation of the original Greek phrase John wrote would be the Son who is in the bosom of the Father. And this is a profoundly intimate picture. Jesus, God the Son, has eternally enjoyed deep intimacy in the bosom of his Father, God the Father, who has loved him from before the creation of the world. They have eternally enjoyed the closest relationship of pure and perfect love. And this love, Jesus says, this love is the love which God the Father and God the Son now lavish on all those who believe in Jesus. So holy, so almighty is God, so awesome that this is an outrageous thing to claim, really. Except that Jesus himself said it. This is the God he has made known. Not another one. There isn't a different one, a non-loving version. The God who Jesus reveals to us is a God who loves lavishly. He's holy. Part of his holiness and essential to his being, to his nature, is love. So John will later on write in one of his letters, which we'll come back to later as well, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. As loved as Jesus, brothers and sisters with him. A couple of weeks ago, I was at a a refreshment conference, and someone brought the words of this uh, hymn, which I just found were a real blessing I can't pronounce the author's name, probably. Catesby Paget, Paget? don't know, is that right, Tony? No. Anyway, that's his name. doesn't really matter. The hymn is at mind at perfect peace with God. And listen to these words. This is um, what he, how he tries to describe this. So near, so very near to God, I could not nearer be. For in the person of his Son, I am as near as he. So dear, so very dear to God, more dear I could not be, the love with which he loves his son, such is his love to me. If Jesus and his disciples were already walking towards, uh, through the city at this point, 
that he was already walking towards the garden where he knew his betrayer would deliver him into the hands of those who would crucify him. I just find it so very poignant to think that as he walks towards those events, events that will occur in a matter of hours, even as he walks towards those events, he says in verse 13, in connection with his love for them, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. They didn't understand what was about to happen. But he said those words within hours. He'd be laying down his life for them and for us. And it's a life that he laid down for you too. If you trust in him, if you believe in him. Jesus' death both shows his love, demonstrates the extent of his love. But also Jesus' death is the way by which we enter into that love. The way we can receive it. For he died for a purpose. He didn't just kind of say, hey, this is how much I love you, and get killed. His death accomplished something. His death accomplished our forgiveness, the washing clean of our sin. Accomplished all God's blessing that he wanted to give us. And all the problems that our rebellion had put in the way. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And then Jesus goes and does it for them and for us. John had earlier said, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now, uh, some of us hopefully might be worshipping inside in our hearts as we think about this great love. But maybe this is completely new to you, to others of us. You might have never thought about who Jesus is or what God is like before, or at least not thought about the God who Jesus reveals. Or maybe you carry some Christian baggage. Maybe you've been around in churches or Christian circles, but you've lost your focus or you've wondered, or it's become about something else for you. Or you've never known this God, the loving God, this story of salvation, of being brought in to share his love. And if you're in any of those places, I encourage you, I urge you to take a fresh look at Jesus, to see who he really is. Discover the God who he reveals. The God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. The God whose eternal love for each other overflows to us in salvation. God the Father making us his beloved children by the Spirit through the Son. Hear his invitation to believe in him and receive his free gift of life and enter into his joy and rest. You could start by reading John's Gospel from the beginning. Uh, Seeing as we're looking at that at the moment, other Gospels are available, I should say, like a kind of BBC. Um, But uh, you could read John's Gospel. If you haven't got a Bible, I've got some copies, a couple of copies of uh, this uh, version of John's Gospel, um, I'll be in the foyer afterwards, and I'd really love to give this to you if you'd like to read this and, uh, and look into this uh, for the first time, perhaps, or reconsidering things. He offers it to us. He invites us all. And as John again said in his introduction in verse 12, chapter 1, to all who did receive him, the Son, the Word, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God.
So uh, we spent some time surveying the heights of Jesus' love for us. Perhaps we can now begin to feel the weight of his command. Love each other as I have loved you. What does that mean? What does it look like? Well, for a start, we can know for certain that Jesus was serious about this. That he held this as, great impo- as greatly important. How many other explicit commands do we hear from Jesus' lips with those words, this is my command? We thought uh, last week a bit about this kind of sense of the command to believe. But it's not the kind of thing we hear that often. And yet here twice, verse, first in verse 12, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. And then repeated in verse 17, this is my command, love each other. He meant it. So if we're serious about following Jesus, serious about being his disciples, committed to abiding in him, then we must view this command as importantly as Jesus intended us to view it. We saw last week, and we can't claim to love Jesus and, and not be committed to keeping this command. Verse 15 of chapter 14, if you love me, keep my commands. Verse 21, whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Verses 23 and 24 of chapter 14, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Jesus makes clear that to remain in his love uh, has some kind of application, some implication for us. We, We don't have to wonder what he means. We don't have to come up with our own kind of religious sounding jargon or mystical interpretations. Jesus makes it clear that if we receive his love in the way that he receives his love, the love of his father for him, then our response is to be the same as his response to the father. He obeys the father perfectly, completely. And so we are to obey him too. Again, in chapter 14, in verse 31, Jesus said, I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. But this obedience isn't a joyless thing. Did you notice in verse 11, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This obedience isn't a joyless thing. And maybe you're kind of thinking, you know, you're a bit turned off by the idea of thinking about obedience. It's not very trendy these days, is it? When was the last time you heard someone going on about a popular Christian book and it was all about obedience? It's amazing. I don't really hear people talking like that. Obedience gets under our skin a bit, perhaps. Our society has a massive objection to people who tell us what we should think or what we should do. Just a couple of nights ago on the news, I watched a British politician commenting with outrage that the European should be that the European that the European Union should be telling us what to do. It seemed like his outrage was that the EU might have views on how Britain should leave. I don't want to get into the politics, but uh, my point is just that in many areas of life, in that area and in many other areas, we don't like being told what we should or shouldn't do. It's not popular. We need to get over that, though, if we're going to hear what Jesus is saying here. We need to get over ourselves if we want to hear what he's saying. Because there's no place for that attitude with God. I can't be a true Jesus follower and at the same time harbor an attitude of, 
Who are you to tell me what to do towards God? It's part of what we mean by calling Jesus Lord. When we call Jesus Lord, we're saying something profound about who he is, but we're also saying that he has the right to complete lordship over us. He has my unreserved submission. This isn't cold, this isn't emotionless or slavish. It follows, it flows from love and, as we've seen, brings completeness of joy. Such obedience flows out of our love for Jesus. That's uh, seen in chapter 14. It flows out of our love for Jesus. But it does flow out of our love for Jesus. It's consistently, obedience does follow true love. And uh, if we kind of think about these things, sooner or later we, our minds maybe, if we're familiar with, with the New Testament, perhaps go to 1 John, John's first letter, which is a bit later on. Uh, we're really not going to spend much time on it now. But um, if you want to kind of follow on thinking through from this morning, if you want to, to keep thinking, what is, what is Jesus saying to me? What is God saying to me through this? Then I really encourage you to take a look at 1 John and, and read that letter. Uh, the theme is, is present in chapter 2 of 1 John. Uh, and there's hints of it actually in, in the briefing from Jesus at the outset. Hints of this briefing from Jesus at the outset in chapter 1. But in chapter 3, John puts it very bluntly, chapter 3 of 1 John, as he writes that anyone who does not love their brother and sister is not God's child. He's referring to brothers and sisters in the family of God's people, the church. If we don't love our spiritual brothers and sisters in the church, John writes, then we're not a child of God. He makes it explicit in chapter 4 of his letter. Let's just read this quickly. It's page 1,227. 1,227. It's 1 John chapter 4. And I'm just going to read a few verses. Start at verse 7. 1 John chapter 4 verse 7. This is really important for what Jesus is saying here in John 15. 1 John 4 verse 7. Dear friends... Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, Since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love is made complete in us. Skip to verse 16. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God, and God in them. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This matters. This isn't some... Uh, interesting but slightly irrelevant uh, philosophical ponderings or, or reflections on life. This is what the living God has to say to us. This is what Jesus the Son commands and effectively says will define us. Uh, if you've bought any tech recently, you might have found that user guides and manuals aren't what they used to be. 
Uh, I helped my mum set up a, a, a new printer last weekend, and it kind of came with a, a single, single sheet of paper. It was two-sided, very generous of them, uh, but a pretty useless uh, two-sided sheet of paper with some very basic diagrams uh, that didn't really help. It was of minimal use. And that's the way many things seem to be, isn't it, I've noticed. Uh, minimal information in so-called quick start guides, and then you've got to dig around online to find the instruction manual uh, or user guide with any sort of detail. Well, it's not in that useless category, but this is quick start guide level material information we're looking at this morning. Open the box to following Jesus, and this is what it says. Believe him, love him, love God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and love his children, your brothers and sisters. I would hazard a guess that any of us who've tried to love all of our brothers and sisters in all of the churches we've ever had any connection with might just have sometimes, occasionally with one or two, found it just a little bit difficult to love them. And most probably those same brothers and sisters have found it a little bit difficult to love us. It can feel difficult enough to love them at all, let alone to love them anywhere near the degree that Jesus commands us to love them, to love them as he has loved us. Difficult is an understatement. It shouldn't surprise us, perhaps, though perhaps it does, that as we try to love those brothers and sisters who we find it difficult to love, we learn that this kind of love is costly. It costs us some kind of sacrifice. Funny that, isn't it? Who would have thought that to love like Jesus loves costs sacrifice? Ah. Well, Jesus certainly had in mind where his love for the Father and his disciples was about to take him when he said, greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. But there's application for us here also. You see, the love that he calls us to have for each other is not just a sentimental love. Jesus isn't saying here uh, he commands us to have a kind of warm and fuzzy feeling about each other. Uh, So if that's all we've got, then... Yeah, I'm sure that's probably not the case, but that's not what he commands us, to have a warm and fuzzy feeling about each other. It's a love that does stuff. It's a love that gives. If you read 1 John 3, you'll see there's some practical kind of examples there of what this love might look like in practice. But I'm going to pause for a minute. And whilst I do, I'd like to encourage us to think about a brother or sister who we find it difficult to love. Uh, Please don't say any names out loud. Uh, Maybe you'll think of just one person. Maybe a few people will be on your mind. Maybe they're in this room with you now. Maybe they're even stood up here preaching. Maybe they're part of another church in the city or elsewhere in the country or world. But think about that person or people and ask the Lord, how can I love them as you have loved me? What would loving them look like? What might it cost me? What sacrifice might I need to make in order to obey your word in loving them, my brother or sister? Just take a moment to to reflect. Lord, thank you for your outrageous, astonishing, lavish, extravagant love for me. Please help me, Lord, to obey you in loving my brother and sister, as you have loved me. 
Strengthen me, Lord, with your Holy Spirit to love. Help me to see them as you see them, your dearly loved child, a beloved son or daughter of the Father, a brother or sister of the Son for whom he laid down his life, a brother or sister of mine, in whose heart the same Holy Spirit cries, Abba, Father, as cries it in my heart. Lord, for our church as part of your family, we pray you would so work in our hearts that love would overcome hate, that pride would be stripped away, that forgiveness and reconciliation would radiate among us and shine out from us for your glory. Amen. I must finish, but I'm aware I haven't answered the question, so what is fruit? (laughs) Um, Is it obedience? Is it new converts? Is it love? Is it character? I think in all those things, perhaps we're thinking too narrowly. And either Jesus or John spells out the answer to this question, and perhaps there's a reason for that. Perhaps the fruitfulness that all branches who are abiding in the vine will produce is broad, varied. There will be fruit, and it will look very different to Israel's, uh, Israel under the old covenant. The fruit will be good fruit, not rotten fruit. This fruit's going to include, clearly, this loving of each other. Let's start with that, shall we? Um, But this fruit will include many other things too. Experience of Jesus' joy, obeying his other commands, witness to the world, uh, that kind of growing, receiving life from him as a branch receiving life from its vine. But let's not get distracted by, by working out all the things Jesus might be or might not be including as fruit. Instead, let's sit up and take note of the one thing he made explicitly clear will feature as the fruit of those who are connected to him, dwelling in him, receiving the life from him, love for each other. And uh, this kind of, yeah, no, I'm going to stop. Okay. But as we finish, just also aware that some of us maybe are feeling quite keenly our our failures in this area or our our inadequacy in, in loving one another in this way. And so let's remember that he's a God who holds out grace to us. The same Jesus who calls for our obedience is our great high priest who knows our weakness. Yes, the standard has been set as the supreme obedience of Jesus, to love as he has loved us. But that doesn't mean we give up if we realize we've fallen short. If it did, none of us would be here. Again, 1 John is a really helpful place to go because it it kind of holds these two things in balance. This is the standard. This is what we're called to. This is what we should expect to see. But when we do sin, when we do fail, we have one who, who pleads on our behalf, one who makes us right with God, who brings his love to us and his grace for us. One of the old... Um, uh, Puritan writers said uh, something like, I think, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. There is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us. Read 1 John and uh, you can follow up from there. I'm going to hand back over to, to the band. <laughs>